So there's two people that I've invited here this evening that I think are going to help elucidate all of this. First is the Community Justice Scotland Chief Executive and Scottish Violence Reduction Unit alumni, pioneer in the face of violence, Karen McCluskey. Make some noise. <laughs> On you come, Karen. and the uh, development officer for the Scottish Violence Reduction Unit and, for my money, Scotland's leading campaigner on trauma-informed practice, James Doherty. <laughs> what do you think of the chairs, guys? They are amazing. I'm going to have this at work. For people listening to the podcast, we've got basically three really opulent looking thrones that we're all sitting in while we talk about social injustice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we start, I don't want to assume the, the level of knowledge or experience of the audience and all the people who are listening uh, right now. So there's a couple of concepts that I just want to get ball on deck that I'm sure we will be referring back to at various points so that people understand where we're at. So the first one is when we're talking about violence, when we're talking about violence in a developed Western economy like uh, Britain. Developed obviously is doing a lot of heavy lifting right now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> then uh, what, what are the types of violence that we're talking about, Karen? So the type of violence that we were dealing with is interpersonal violence. And we used to talk about it like everything from bullying right the way up to suicide which is self-directed violence. And we seem to forget that, you know, at our peril. But the sort of violence that we were saying was the stuff that I suppose is, the news is full of, violence on the streets. But we actually had to come up with a special name for it in Glasgow, because when the World Health Organization defined violence, it didn't talk about recreational violence. And we had recreational violence. Just that's what people did. They came out in the streets. It wasn't it rob somebody. It wasn't about, you know, that I needed your watch and I needed to use a knife to get it. So it's that sort of violence we were looking at. Not wars. That was even too big for, for us. And this, this encompasses um, gang violence. This encompasses gender-based violence, uh, violence against children. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, the other concept that, that we'll probably be referring to uh, many times this evening, James, is this idea of ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, which I know has been an area of interest of yours for a very, very long time, and I think you've helped to popularise a lot of the language around that mm. um, in Scotland, uh, which has been of immense benefit to, to, to countless people. Uh, I wonder if you could just explain what Adverse Childhood Experiences is as a concept. So, <clears throat> adverse childhood experiences or ACEs um, are basically negative events that happen in childhood when you're going through really vulnerable stages of development. 
And obviously there's windows into when these are more de detrimental to your development as a human being. So the younger they happen, the more negatively they can influence your development. And the ACE study has basically highlighted how uh, a lot of the risk factors associated with having multiple adverse childhood experiences, including poverty in that bracket and many others, because your ACE's IQ needs to be broader than what's on the original study. It's recognising that they're detrimental to creating your worldview and how you navigate interpersonal relationships all through your life and obviously how they affect your health, the health outcomes as a population as well. For example, if you've had four or more adverse childhood experiences, your risk of heart disease um, goes up more exponentially than it does all the other traditional risk factors like smoking and drinking. So a really stressful childhood is massively um, negatively impacts health as well. So it isn't just about behaviour. And, and, and can you give me some examples of what these adverse events entail? What, what specific things is it that we're talking about that might happen in a, in a kid's life? So <clears throat> there's 10 on the original study, so there's two two categories of abuse, um, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. There's a category of neglect as well, which would cover emotional neglect. There's also parental separation, which would represent a type of abandonment experienced by the child. Um, and also there's parental imprisonment. So a parent who goes into prison is, would also be um, experienced by the child as a type of abandonment, the loss of a relationship. So there's, they're massively misunderstood. My, the biggest part of my work, Dan's been about trying to get people, because when you hear the word trauma or adverse childhood experiences, like adverse childhood experiences don't equate to trauma because it's about what's lacking in your life when they've happened. So it's been shown that you can have 10 adverse childhood experiences and you're doing okay because you had a wider um, social capital who was able to mitigate and buffer that experience. So it's ultimately the kids who are lack, lack that relational contact with emotionally available, safe, stable adult caregivers. The kids that lack that are the ones that will get the more negative outcomes. And this, um, this intersects with uh, social inequality, deprivation, poverty, whatever you want to call it, in the sense that where there is a higher density or a, where there is a, a, a greater lack of opportunity, lack of resources, more stress levels, and therefore higher potential for incidences of trauma to occur, then ultimately this means we're talking about like entire cohorts of children technically at what it sounds like you're describing is kind of a cognitive disadvantage aspects of the brain development are, are, are not coming online and so yeah. this impacts how they present behaviorally within school which then could create the conditions for exclusion which is a catalyst for all of the other police involvements and criminal justice ingestion that, yeah. that occurs later on now obviously poverty has evolved a lot it's evolved you know even within my lifetime I mean, the concept of a food bank, for example. 
I mean, that to me is, is, I could never have imagined that when I was signing on. But the stress and the impacts of the stress on the household and family relations, they, they, they remain fundamentally the same, don't they? In terms of... Mm, yeah, yeah. Aye, aye. Yeah. Because ACEs are detrimental to the parent-child relationship or the caregiver-child relationship, so it doesn't matter where your social economic background is. If they're not noticed, buffered and mitigated and processed, then they can have a detrimental impact on somebody who's grown up um, in a middle-class area, who's got two parents at that are now living in poverty, for example. But where I see it having a more negative impact on young people, when you look at the most, more socially deprived areas, and we've often discussed this, why is the, the most, most socially deprived areas get more bookies, off licenses, fast food restaurants? And because these, these places, are, these um, alcohol, gambling, for example, and fast food, unconsciously are attempts at a solution for somebody who is highly stressed. And that's why the areas that are high in deprivation have, have, got, have got these outlets for that type of stress. And that's why, for example, most of the drug deaths are from areas that are impoverished, because that's where the most stress is. Most people who are excluded from school are in the most impoverished areas, because that's where the most stress is. And, and ultimately, that's what it's about. It's impact on the stress response. Yeah, and when we see these school league tables published every year, celebrating or deriding the, the academic achievement of, of various educational institutions, I often feel it would be good if we could have a parallel table of what the average house price is in the areas, just so we can get a little, like, a, a bit of a linear correlation between yeah. uh, educational attainment and, and wealth. Um, Karen, I want, to, I want to back this over to you, and this is more kind of getting into more philosophical territory in terms of criminal justice, right? Um, criminal justice or the threat of punishment, this is one of the forces that kind of moderates uh, various forms of violence. I would probably be a more violent person if it wasn't for the fact that <laughs> I would get into trouble, right? <laughs> if we uh, catch you. Yes, exactly, and I'm sure many, many people here are, are the same. Um, but within criminal justice, there are two, two concepts I particularly want to touch on because when it comes to talking about trauma, it comes to talking about often the, the negative impacts you experience as a child for which you're not culpable, then impact your behaviour up to an age where you do become culpable under the law. And so there is the con concept of retribution and the concept of rehabilitation. These are very difficult to square off, aren't they, in terms of how do we hold someone accountable for an act of violence while at the same time understanding the social economic context in which that behaviour is ingrained? See, I've never found it that, that difficult because there is no excuses for crime, but there's loads of reasons. I have never been in a prison, never really bumped into anybody whose story didn't start with, see when I was five, see when I was seven, see when I was 12. And you have to see both of them. You, you can understand the retribution of society, the, de the deprivation of liberty and, you know, perhaps a sentence. But you still need to address the underlying cause. And I don't know, we just now, right now in Scotland and the UK, we seem to have forgotten about that. We're going right back to longer sentences. We don't want to know anything about trauma. It's just how long can we jail people for, build more prisons? 
and it's a really destructive, it feels quite obscene to me because the evidence base around all the stuff that James has talked about, all the stuff that we know works, we just seem to be throwing it out for, I don't know, I'm politically restricted, so I'm not allowed to say, but you understand. I, I I think what you're trying to say, well, Karen. I'm trying to. <laughs> don't worry, to I'm, I'm not going phrase. to mansplain that one. Don't <laughs> worry. Um, but no, I, I see what you're getting at. We're talking about like government by public opinion, and public opinion is partly manufactured by media forces. And so when you have a lot of papers constantly screeching about the low-level criminality that we see, and turning a blind eye to the higher-level criminality in society. Or, or, or given as a rich context for that high-level criminality, then what you have is a public opinion which is itself driven by stress and looking for retribution. And I guess this does then find expression in uh, hastily fashioned policy making that's about securing a short-term political advantage rather than looking at society in terms of decades of developing an idea, sticking to it and refining it. I don't want to get too overtly political. I, des I, I wanted this particular fringe run to avoid that because for my mental health, you know, I have to defend <laughs> all of these things on trains and buses and for the rest of my life. So I did want to have a kind of lighter conversation. But obviously you're, you're, you're involved in the public realm, both of you, and I guess to varying degrees, you'll have experienced either people being highly receptive to these, these uh, new ideas around trauma, around well-being, and then there is going to always be a kind of stubborn old guard that thinks it's a, a load of fluffy liberal pish, really. Yeah. Well, how do we persuade people who are, 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 are uh, undeterred from their more traditional views on, on crime and punishment? Do you know you can't? I mean, I used to have them in three groups. This is really unsophisticated. I used to have the group that I went to see and they would say, you're absolutely right, and I'm with you, Karen. It was always a really bad thing because I would just haunt them forever to do stuff. And then I had the group in the middle who said, yeah, you might be right, and I see that the evidence is there, but this sounds like more work for me. And I can persuade them. And then there's a group at the end who just don't want to know, who just say, just you send them to jail. I don't want to know anything about it. And I can't spend the time trying to convince them. I used to go out and speak to around 15,500 people a year face to face. Did it for 10 years solid, went everywhere to Inverary, to Inverurie, spoke to everybody. And it was amazing attraction when you were standing in front of them that would say, you're absolutely right, I see that. I know somebody like that. So you could almost humanise it and make it authentic. But when you're reading the paper, it's really difficult. The weaponisation of justice is so easy for people to get snap judgments. I mean, I love going out and speaking to kids. I go out to the schools and I speak to the fourth and the fifth and the sixth years. And they experience that cognitive dissonance. You know, you give them a piece of information and I'll show them a piece of footage and they'll say, oh, you should go to jail. Jail for 10 years. And then you tell them about the background and all the stuff that's happened to them in the past and they'll say, all right, somebody should have done something there. And the young people experience that cognitive dissonance. I don't think we do when we're older. We've got these firm views. So I quite like it, and I've been doing it for so long now. They're in their 30s and 40s now. They say, I saw you at school, and I'm like, oh, thanks very much. You know, I could be carbon dated now. But it's, it's I mean, that's how you change society, and it's incremental. And I'd love big change right now, but it's gradual. Yeah, and that's, that's uh, part, I guess, of the frustration. This is why sometimes, maybe even against my own will, I will sympathise with politicians in, my, in our private moments, because it, it, it takes a lot to get into a profession 
where you know no matter what you do, you're pissing off at least 50% of the population in the first instance. Um, now, James, uh, we talk a lot about lived experience. And like every term that becomes popularised, it's often kind of thrown around and it becomes a catch-all term for all sorts of things. But ball on deck, it's basically just the idea, isn't it, that any institution that is working with the public around an area of public health or education or, or, or criminal justice or whatever, uh, should involve people who have experience of that issue um, and that would better inform their practice. I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on the importance of lived experience and what might some of the challenges be of, yeah. of, of lived experience um, in terms of involving people who have themselves experienced high levels of, of trauma and might be, you know, from, speaking from experience, might be a bit spiky now and again. <laughs> Take me about an hour to answer that. That's a fringe show itself. Um, I think the thing about lived experience and why I believe they should be included is because uh, one of the, num the, the number one principle in trauma-informed practice is you do it with people, not to them. And people who have been traumatised have had stuff done to them that shouldn't have been done to them. And if they've not got their self-efficacy and their autonomy in any process, then it always, they will always resist the process and that's why that's why I always say that the understanding the relationship needs to be more important than the plan of action or the strategy because if they're not involved in the process, then it breeds conflict. And, and then the, <clears throat> what I come with my own lived experiences that a lot of people know. And when you were saying to Karen there about how do you convince people about why we should go down a different paradigm is because it's lazy to think that you can punish people into a better way of being in the world. But if you really get smart and look into people's experience and you understand who occupies the criminal justice system, what you will realise is, is that these people have already been living a punishing enough experience and you adding to it isn't going to make it better. And so the whole premise of punishing people into a better way of living is always going to come up short because their life's already a punishing enough experience. So it's looking at, yes, you're accountable. Trauma isn't an excuse for your behaviour, but it's looking at what is the mechanisms that enable somebody to recover and heal and be psychoeducated on what might be driving their behaviour. Because if it's just about punishing behaviour, then it's lazy, but if you look at the wider aspect of what it takes to recover for the causes and conditions of what's driving this paper, eh, behaviour, then I think that politicians take that hard part of the line a lot of the times because if it's about blaming the individual, then it takes a whole society off the hook and what they've got to do about it. And I can personally attest that I've done prison, I've been to prison, and I've been to trauma therapy. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life is look at my trauma. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life is look at the restorative process about what I need to do to recover, what I need to do to repair some of the harm I caused to my family, my community when I was active in a gang. Sending me to prison is easy compared to that. That's my truth. And I've worked with enough people who come for that experience that, that 
they can confirm that that's the truth as well. Prison's lazy. It's one of the laziest things we can do as a society is just throw pe people in a prison because you're just warehousing people. Yeah, it's, 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 it's almost like it's, uh, particularly when you're talking about young offenders, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like they're being triaged in a young offenders institution until someone figures out what we're going to do with these people yeah. because they're presenting with such multifaceted complexity at every level of, of, of you know, their biology, their psychology. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's like you're sweeping it un, under the carpet. I want to kind of like stay on this topic. Obviously, one of the things with this show, guys, is I'm getting people involved throughout the course of the week and generally who have lived experience of, of, of various things. But I hope what, what you'll notice is uh, I don't want to get people up here and prompt them to talk about that. If they want to talk about that, that's fine. But I respect people's achievements in life. I want to hear about people's philosophies in life. And I don't want people to be permanently trapped in their own self-portrait of them in a, a years gone by previous. Um, so, so while lived experience, and I thank you for sharing that part uh, of your experience willingly, because I certainly wouldn't have been trying to draw, draw it out of you, because uh, I think that's quite vulgar. Um, but we, we talk about violence in general terms, but very often we're talking about male violence. And this takes specific forms, doesn't it, in different uh, contexts. I remember one time, I think it was maybe at a VRU training event or something like that, um, uh, where uh, an, uh, an academic or a medic described a young man at the age of 18 as basically being like a, a, a top-of-the-range sports car. Um, in terms of their level of physical fitness. And then when you pour alcohol in it, that top of the range sports car is just crashing into everything and it can't be controlled. And so there is something about maleness at the biological level and the hormonal level straight away, which seems to predispose us to violence in particular context. But then there's a cultural aspect of it as well, isn't there? Where we, we kind of live up to that. We, we, we feel that that's some, a toolkit we need to have in our armory. I wonder what your thoughts are on, on, on this and also maybe if you want to elaborate on the various harms that that very male culture of violence, particularly in Scotland and the west of Scotland, has on other people in society who are not male. It's difficult for me as a woman to speak about men, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, do you know, I, it is a really challenging, I mean, we try and keep people out of the justice system. We've actually done really well keeping young people out of the system. When we started the Violence Reduction Unit, we probably had about three or 400 young people in Pullman. Last week or the week before, we had five under 18s. That is, that is phenomenal. And that is, you know, youth workers and it's teachers yeah. and it's, it's sheriffs and it's some of the people in this audience who have absolutely recognised that you need to try and keep young people away. It's like an infection in the justice system. See, once you get it once, it can become lifelong and life-limiting. It's like, you know, it's like getting a herpes simplex virus, you know. You get it again and again and again. So try not to get them infected. And I would like us to be zero. And I know there's people in here that would like it to be zero. So that's good. 
But the sort of violence that, that I see and the sort of violence that sort of start, started this off was, was lots of the gang violence. So for those that don't know, I was a really terrible nurse at one point, but I, I love a wound. So I used to work in emergency rooms all the time. I still love a wound, just saying. And, and I used to hang around Glasgow Royal Infirmary, you know, with like some of the consultants and watch guys that were coming in, you know, like with, with massive wounds. I mean, sometimes on their backside, which was always like that, you know, the, this isn't working out too well for you here, big man. You might want to think of changing this. But they'd be on their phones, like, so they'd be on the front with me, you know, as a doom master in the background, thinking, I would like a wee go at that, you know. And they'd be texting, they'd be texting, plotting their revenge, the tit-for-tat violence. And it was extraordinary. I mean, some of them were, like, really seriously hurt, and yet it was perpetuated, and it was that bit about masculinity, about you never turn away for a fight. And, you know, and even the, uh, the eponymous, and I hate calling it this now, because what it is is serious maxillofacial injury, is the, the Glasgow smile, as it used to be called. I mean, that is putting the knife up someone's face. If you get that, you will, you will suffer around 50 years worth of deprivation off the back of it. Because what do people see when they see you? They think, oh, there looks like an angry man, a violent man, but you're a victim. And we used to get one every six hours, 24 hours a day, in each of the hospitals in Glasgow. So hundreds and hundreds of them. And it was extraordinary. And people just used to think, we are amazing at this. We can stitch up and we are, you know, we're really good at cracking people's chests for thoracotomies. And it was all these young men and they were dying in our hospitals. So, but it's an interesting thing talking about Glaswegian masculinity. I talked about it because I said that sometimes the only people on TV that I saw, or even in the archers, were like hard drinking Scottish people, and people poo pooed it and said, oh, that's absolutely ridiculous. But I think that's the way we're portrayed, and we try and live up to it. I'll never be a 16 year old boy in Easterhouse or Rikese, so, you know, I need other guys to talk about it. Um, and it's not, it's not easy to broach, is it? I mean, I've had a couple of misfires myself, personally, over the years, trying to, trying to broach it, trying to talk about male behaviour, or even trying to be open about some of my own attitudes and experiences in a particular context where it was safe to discuss it like that, and then have what I said recontextualised as some kind of confession that I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. And so there are significant risks to anybody in the public space who is trying to open up that conversation, particularly uh, around men, as, as often our behaviour relates to women or, or, or children. Um, let's go back to lived experience, James, because obviously we've emphasised there the, the importance of, of, of including the perspectives of people with lived experience. But we know with our deep grasp of social class dynamics in society that there is actually a dearth of lived experience the higher up the food chain you go. And obviously the problem with that is that the higher up the food chain you go, the more power and influence you have. And so in the criminal justice system, for example, um, do you think that a lack of lived experience might have a negative impact on how legal professionals assess what is happening in a particular situation, maybe even in the punishments that are handed down? Because I know the law is the law and there's often very little room for interpretation depending on what's gone on but there must be a negative impact of mostly all judges in the country coming from upper middle class backgrounds presiding over uh, a population that comes from deprived backgrounds <laughs> well 
they've not got an internal frame of reference for what it's like to be living in that experience. So it's very difficult to form a judgment based on what it'd be like to be living in that experience. And also, what would some of the best solutions look like in regards to the pathway away from it, or how to have the credibility to be able to have the conversations that I'm able to have, for example, with the people I work with who have, have been involved in gang violence or that, where I carry a certain credibility because I come from that world. So first of all, they don't see me as an authority-based figure where they can be open and transparent about some of the dynamics that might be happening in their life. I think it's very difficult um, how, like, I couldn't see myself as a judge, for example, <laughs> even though even though I can be quite judgmental. Uh, <clears throat> who am I not to who am I not to judge? <laughs> who am I not to be judged? So it's that thing down where like <laughs> the people I work with are theme songs this. You don't know what it's like to be me. What do you know? And how do you cut past that dynamic to be able to have people who are strategically placed in certain positions of influence and power who can look at you and say, I do know what it's like to be you, and this is what I've done about it. And it's not okay for you to continue in that vein of forum because this is why the justice system exists in the first place, because when people are operating at a lower level of consciousness, they act out certain types of behaviour, and that's why we need a, a greater aspect of the social conscience to be able to put the brakes on that so that people can't just think they can... What's the best way to describe it? Live, live the way they want without, yeah. uh, without um, being held accountable. The, um, uh, a couple of things I want to touch on briefly and then we'll, we'll open it up for 10-15 minutes to you guys. Um, so, don't ask a shite question, do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> no one wants to hear your shite question. <clears throat> Uh, no pressure, obviously. That's when I transfer my stress onto them, you know what I mean? Hmm. Uh, the first thing I wanted to, to ask was, in the conversation in the UK, we're very much going through a period of, look, this is as good as it gets. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It used to be things can only get better. No, it's this is as good as it gets. We can't do anything different. We're restricted by inflation, we're restricted by Brexit, we're restricted by all these different things. Uh, but you guys will know, as you're continually on a path of self-education, as it relates to your work, that there are examples, you know, globally of things that are done differently and, and have positive outcomes as a result. The sort of things that you try to explain to someone from here and they go, shut up, there's no way, there's no way. So I wonder if we could kind of try and sort of turn the conversation to focusing on maybe developments that are given as cause for optimism, despite the fact there's a long way to go till we create the environment where they could be implemented here. See, I'm always really, I am always positive. I still think we can do stuff. See, when we had loads and loads of money, we didn't fix this either. So it's not just about money. Sometimes it's about, I need to be able to shut my eyes and think that's the direction of travel. So. I mean, one of the big things that I love, I love looking at Finland, although when I went there, they tried to feed me reindeer and said it was vegetarian. No, it's not. And pickled herring. But like in Finland, like the kids don't go to school until they're seven or eight. And when they go to school, there is no educational outcomes. And this is going to sound quite Soviet, if I'm allowed to say that. 
the only educational outcomes for Finnish kids is to turn out is, is about compassion, communication, team working, empathy. And they don't test their kids until the age of 14. But because they focus so much on those skills that help young people navigate their way through life without bumping into alcohol and drugs and making good decisions, when they actually test their kids at the age of 14, they turn out the best educated kids in the world. You know, they're constantly at the top of the OECD PISA study. You know, that their society feels fairer, feels more equal. And their kids seem happier. They're, you know, on the well-being index, which I think is a nice thing. Do we all not want well-being? Not how many O-levels? Do we still not have it? Not fives or hires. But can people experience well-being? So for me, when I would like to be a bit more like Finland. And, and yeah, and, and, and just to, to add, because I think that's a great example. And there's a couple of key features of the Finnish education system also, which is the continuity mm -hmm. of, of care, if you will. You start with a teacher and that teacher takes you through many, many years of schooling. And so that builds those relationships that you're talking about, that relational contact, there's that intuition, that rapport. This person becomes a figurehead in your life rather than just a relay racer passing you like a baton to the next uh, professional. Um, and also they've got a much minimised private sector oh. as well, which then tempers the, the levels of inequality, doesn't it? But they it? also do pedagogy. So something like 5% of the working population are pedagogues and they support every child in the family until the age of eight. And there is something really lovely about that, that's, that's support for the family, because being a parent is really difficult. And being a good parent or good enough is as close as it gets to being magic without being magic. The final thing that I want to float is, is um, less to do with violence and more around this concept of trauma, which I feel we have do delved into uh, in, in, in an important way. I've been wrestling with this idea of trauma, particularly the public airing of trauma, which due to social media, it's one of the many uh, ever-present phenomenon that we see. People identify in their life through a result of experiences they've had comparing that to other people's experiences, they self-diagnose as traumatised and they think that the solution to that trauma is simply to tell it as a story. Mm. And what I see repeatedly is people becoming trapped in that story and they find no resolution to the trauma. And it's a difficult conversation because you have to have the rapport and you have to speak with a level of understanding and sensitivity. But my feeling is, and I wonder what you think, James, my feeling is someone has to have a conversation with people like this to say um, we could create the perfect utopian circumstances uh, in society. Ultimately, it's still going to fall to you to make the decision to move to the next level of recovery from your trauma and recognise that actually tightly bounding it up in your identity makes it difficult to look at because any discussion about it feels like a personal attack. And I've felt that sensitivity when it's been pointed out with me. I wonder if you could just share some of your thoughts on that, because it's a great time to be talking about trauma, but I think culturally we've got stuck at the point where people just talk about the bad things that's happened to yeah. them or the bad people in their life. Yeah. And, and there's this almost, this assumption that things like forgiveness is, a, is about uh, an abuser-centered trauma discussion, where when you're asking somebody to forgive someone, 
you're asking them to forgive abuse that's happened to them when that's not what we're asking, is it, James? No, absolutely not. Um, so the thing that's always bothered me that where, like, what I heard somebody describe it as like trauma safari. I've always believed that we need to psychoeducate people and we need to get it right for the parents so they can get it right for the children because it's about looking at relational wealth because most trauma is worked out in the community. It isn't sitting in front of a specialised therapist and it's recognising that the more healthy relationships you can surround somebody with, the better the outcomes seem to be. And Bruce Perry, uh, who's a neurodevelopmental um, psychiatrist and trauma specialist, he's got a bunch of research to back that up and that's also my own experience. But it's recognising that if you get the right information to people and the right mechanisms of support to point them into, then they can become the greatest agents in their own recovery. So a big part of my work has been about the healing because it's, it's a lifelong journey. I've wrote my own doggerel and my own tombstone and it says this. It was a lot more work than I fucking anticipated. <laughs> Because <laughs> and it's it's letting people know, damn, it's hard work. It's it's really difficult work, but the wages are brilliant, and the wages are brilliant because you get to see the look in your Wayne's eyes. Where they are the dead behind the eyes, the lights are on. They can be cheeky to you without the risk of wrath, which wasn't really my experience growing up in my past where you didn't really talk back to the adults in your life. And it's recognising that not only um, is the challenge that to be the greatest agent in your own healing, it's recognising that um, a natural side effect to that is you stop the intergenerational transmission of trauma to the next generation. And that's why we as a society need to support people to transform their trauma so they stop transmitting it because it goes from one generation to the next. Even when you've got knowledge, even when you know you've got philosophical and moral convictions galore, you've got an inability not to transmit it because you lack that power because you've not been able to access the wider psychosocial supports that you need to recover and heal. So it's looking at that as a society. How do we aim people into the wider psychosocial support when it isn't necessarily about um, just regurgitating a story here and there and there again? Let's, let's transmit healing. And here's Tom with the weather. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, okay, I'm going to open it up for 10. I think we, we started a wee bit late, so I'll push it to maybe 12, 13 minutes. Um, for questions or comments, or, or however you, however I don't want to try and control it too much. However, whatever you feel you want to contribute, uh, then feel free, in as timely a fashion as possible, um, just to get as many people in as we can. And I don't believe we have a roving mic, so what we'll do is, if you indicate we do have a roving mic, brilliant, we do, amazing, eh? We emerge from the pit of austerity with roving mics. Um, and, uh, uh, aye, just throw it open then. Put your hand up if you want to answer. Uh, we've got, I don't feel as confident uh, calling the gender of people that I can't see. 
for reasons I'm sure you'll understand, and even people that I can see, that's even riskier today. So what I'll just say is, you. <laughs> While there was a lot of talk around Andrew Tate, who I'm sure we've all heard. You've of. got to hold the mic up to your mouth. It's not. Is it? Well, there we go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, next, ask First your question time. again, because the people listening to the podcast later, they'll not yeah. have heard you. Uh, just talking about young men and social media. Uh, I currently work as a teacher. And there was a lot of talk from uh, young boys in the school about Andrew Tate, seeing him as a role model. Uh, I was just wondering what you think his impact is on male violence, because. A lot of the boys who, um, young people who are fatherless and are coming from a very poor background, they see this man who has cars, has women, has this big fancy house, and he's telling them, telling them how to be a man in the sense of being strong, being powerful, uh, being disrespectful towards women. Just wanted to hear like, what your thoughts were around that and how can we combat that? Because uh, I do think it is going to get worse and worse as, as it goes on. Thanks for your question. You want to take a, sh a shot? I was going to say a stab at that, but given the context of the, <laughs> of the violent conversation... Um... So, so the definition of masculinity is having somebody to look up to. So if young people are looking up to characters like um, that fella Tate, then you need to look at, about, look at what is he doing that's right? Because he'll be doing some things that are right as well. And as soon as people try to cancel him out, then young people just see is, well, I've got a 15-year-old boy, and he talks about the matrix and all that. <laughs> and like, he's, uh, that's just the matrix you're talking about, as if I've been conditioned by this <laughs> culture, you know what I mean? So I'm constantly ringing my 15-year-old out, and he, he looks at things that he disagrees with aspects of what Christian Tate's about, but he thinks that Christian Tate about my boy wants to, he's got this thing where he wants to earn money. But my boy just got three A's and a B in fourth year. I was out of school in first year, I was, part, I was in care. So it's looking at what is it he's doing right, rather than completely trying to cancel people. It's the same with drugs as well. When we educate young people on drugs in school, we tell them drugs are bad. But some of the kids that are in the school are already taking drugs and it's doing something for them that's right. So if you're telling them they're bad, you're shoving it underground. So you need to look at what is it is right about drugs or what characters like Andrew Tate that's make, that young people are leaning into that makes it look attractive and start to have open conversations and then you can start to steer it in a different direction. And it's not the first time that we've had something like this, isn't it? I mean, I, I, you know, I used to do some of the gang work in London and, and at that time it was drill music. You know, and then of course we had everybody trying to ban drill music. And I mean, who in their right minds can ban music? I mean, you know, by the internet, etc. And I think it was trying to turn it around to, to work out what it was attracted these young people yeah. into drill music because it was speaking to their heart. I mean, it was speaking to the heart, and we could never stop it. And whilst I do think it's sort of amongst the, the, they talk about it, how much it's actually feeding into violence, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's a lot of other factors, I think, that are bigger for us right now. But I mean, I understand for teachers, I work in schools all the time, and it is, it's a difficult, difficult job. Thanks for your question. Um, appreciate that. And um, we'll, we'll take another one. 
There, not someone there feeling pretty, pretty keen to get in. <laughs> I've really enjoyed listening to what you've been talking about, right? I've seen a thing, a transformative justice talk a few weeks ago, and it was the lady who works for Penumbra was talking about going in and actually telling prisoners who are sentenced, you've been traumatised. And it, it really interested me. She said that they haven't like, when it quite finished working out the programme that they're going to obviously implement, but it got me really curious. And you're obviously talking about people that have got lived experience. So is it going to be perfectly obvious that obviously the, the best people to tell prisoners that they've been traumatised will be prisoners themselves? And is there any way that that would be implemented? It's got my curiosity. But I suppose I'm pointing that more at you. I forgot, forgot your name, the female. You worked in the prison system and stuff. Karen. So, so thanks, yeah. That's my, my contribution. Pick up the question. We need to get the bass off that mic, man. Uh, <laughs> All I heard was... Absolutely mm. the idea that he said. Did you hear anything? No. Can you hear me better now? Shoot. Shoot. Can Come you hear me better now? Right. We'll cut this out in the edit, don't worry. <laughs> There's loads of it. Yeah. I could be here all day telling you the absolute hu superhumans who are doing that all right. Whether it's it's Cisco in Barlinny, we've got people in, you know, we've got people like going into Edinburgh, and there are some fabulous people doing that already. Yeah. But you're right; it, it needs to be. It probably needs to be taken up a level. But that's really hard when the prison population is through the roof. It's some of the highest that we ever have, and how you can how you can talk about trauma when it's the most traumatising environment. Loads of people overcrowding, you know, you're locked in your cells. That's a hard bit to try and do that intervention. I would much rather, if we can, that we keep people in the community. Yeah. It is by far the best place, connected to all the positive things that we can then talk about some of the trauma and talk. But you're right, it's fantastic work and I applaud everybody that's doing it. Can I, can I also speak to that? Um, I totally agree with you, um, and I think they need to be, like, for example, the first time I ever really engaged somebody with lived experience of the issues, I was navigating, I had landed in a treatment centre, and first of all, the woman says to me, I know how you feel, uh, uh, I'm in recovery, and it blew my mind because I was like, like you're a therapist. I didn't think people, I thought therapists were like middle, upper class. Didn't think that somebody from a working class background could navigate the issues that I did, actually get to a place where they're recovered or in recovery for the addiction. And the beauty of it, it was the, the dynamic I lived experience was these people could see me coming from a off because they had walked that road before me, so they would just call me out in my bullshit in two minutes flat. And you've got a short window when you're working with somebody who's maybe near to going back to an addiction or near going back to the dysfunctional behaviours associated with, with trauma, you've got a short window to set the hook and get them on a different trajectory. And the best people in my 
20 years experience, uh, um, nearly 20 years experience, uh, people who have solved that problem. Shad Marooner's a, a well-known criminologist, and he says, if you want to get through a minefield, you need to find people who have been through the minefield, because they know where the mines are, and they'll help you and stop you from stoning on the ones that are unnecessary. And when you do stone on the ones, and this is my bit, you can tell Shad Marooner how well did I bowing. <laughs> I mean, because the nature of um, healing and recovery is, is you're going to step on mines anyway because we're quite belligerent and defiant. So we insist on going left when you say, no, go right. But they'll be there to put the pieces back together if you do get blow up. And they're the best that I've worked with in regards to being able to enable that process and look at the dysfunction in your life. And the fact that um, people will have the experience who have walked that journey, they're able to visit and that's the beauty of it, because they can tell you what they've done. No tell you what today, they can say, this is what I've done. And you can say, right, I'll try that. If he's done it, I can do it. And that's why lived experience is so effective. And the system needs to move away from the being scared of it. Because we ultimately want to help. And that's, that's what it boils down to. Okay, I know that I said that we might run over because the previous show run over, but I also think it might be good for the venue staff and all that to get kind of a chance to get things back running on time again, because things are always turning over very quickly in here. So I think as a courtesy to them for all how they've accommodated all of us today, I'll wrap up the show there. Um, I just want to thank you all for coming out. Common people will be running all week uh, till next Saturday. We'll have a, a bunch of different people in uh, talking about uh, a similar kind of grab bag of issues, but maybe not necessarily similar in theme. But really what we're talking about is issues that are, 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 are peripheral or tangential or directly about working class or less advantaged experiences. We look at that from different perspectives. We try and bring a bit of humour. We try and bring a bit of insight. We try and bring a bit of humanity. So if you like the sound of any of that, then feel free to, to get another ticket for another event on your way out the door. <laughs> and if you don't, I'll thank you for getting a ticket for tonight and we'll just leave you there. A round of applause for Karen, James. Thank you very much. <laughs>